0: Under the Sea, a classic science fiction adventure novel by French writer Jules Verne. In the last episode, Captain Nemo takes Aranax on a tour of his private Natural History Museum. Nemo's cases are filled with rare specimens drawn from the seas of the world. Corals, shells, starfish, and pearls. His collection is priceless. As much as Aranax enjoys all of this, he's keen to learn how the Nautilus itself is powered. So Nemo sits him down to explain, seated from within his sparsely furnished captain's quarters. Let's get cozy, close your eyes. your body into the softness of your bed. couch in the salon smoking. The captain showed me a sketch that gave the plan, section, and elevation of the Nautilus. Then he began his description in these words. Here, Monsieur Aranax, are the several dimensions of the boat you are in. It is an elongated cylinder with conical ends, It is very like a cigar in shape, a shape already adopted in London in several constructions of the same sort. The Nautilus is composed of two hulls, one inside, the other outside, joined by T-shaped irons, which render it very strong. Indeed, due to the perfect union of the materials enables it to defy the roughest seas do you follow all this? I do. Then, when the Nautilus is afloat under these circumstances, one-tenth is out of the water. These reservoirs are in the lower parts of the Nautilus. I turn on taps and they fill, and the vessel sinks that had just been level with the surface. Well, Captain, but now we come to the real difficulty. I can understand your rising to the surface, but diving below the surface? Does not your submarine contrivance encounter a pressure and consequently undergo an upward thrust of one atmosphere for every 30 feet of water, just about 15 pounds per square inch? Just so, sir. Then, unless you quite fill the Nautilus, I do not see how you can draw it down to those depths. Professor, you must not confound statics with dynamics, or you will be exposed to grave errors. There is very little labor spent in attaining the lower regions of the ocean, for all bodies have a tendency to sink. When I wanted to find out the necessary increase of weight required to sink the nautilus, I had only to calculate the reduction of volume that seawater acquires according to the depth. That is evident. Now, if water is not absolutely incompressible, it is at least capable of very slight compression. The calculation is easily verified. Now, I have supplementary reservoirs capable of holding a hundred tons. Therefore, I can sink to a considerable depth. When I wish to rise to the level of the sea, I only let off the water and empty all the reservoirs if I want the Nautilus to emerge from the tenth part of her total capacity. I had nothing to object to these reasonings. I admit your calculations, Captain, I replied. I should be wrong to dispute them since daily experience confirms them but I foresee a real difficulty in the way. What is that, sir? When you are about a thousand feet deep, the walls of the Nautilus bear a pressure of one hundred atmospheres. If, then, just now you were to empty the supplementary reservoirs to lighten the vessel and to go up to the surface, the pumps must overcome the pressure of one hundred atmospheres which is fifteen hundred pounds per square inch. From that, a power that electricity alone can give, said the captain hastily. I repeat, sir, that the dynamic power of my engines is almost infinite. The pumps of the Nautilus have an enormous power, as you must have observed when their jets of water burst like a torrent upon the Abraham Lincoln." Besides, I use subsidiary reservoirs only to attain a mean depth of 750 to 1,000 fathoms, and that with a view of managing my machines. Also, when I have a mind to visit the depths of the ocean five or six miles below the surface, I make use of slower but not less infallible means. What are they, Captain? That involves my telling you how the Nautilus has worked. I am impatient to learn. To steer this boat to starboard or port, to turn, in a word, following a horizontal plan, I use an ordinary rudder fixed on the back of the stern post, and with one wheel and some tackle to steer by, but I can also make the Nautilus rise and sink and sink and rise, by a vertical movement by means of two inclined planes fastened to its sides, opposite the center of flotation, planes that move in every direction, and that are worked by powerful levers from the interior. If the planes are kept parallel with the boat, it moves horizontally, if slanted, the nautilus according to this inclination, and under the influence of the screw, either sinks diagonally or rises diagonally as it suits me, and even if I wish to rise more quickly to the surface, I ship the screw, and the pressure of the water causes the Nautilus to rise vertically like a balloon filled with hydrogen. Bravo, Captain. But... How can the steersman follow the route in the middle of the waters? The steersman is placed in a glazed box that is raised about the hull of the Nautilus and furnished with lenses. Are these lenses capable of resisting such pressure? Perfectly. Glass, which breaks at a blow, is nevertheless capable of offering considerable resistance. During some experiments of fishing by electric light in 1864 in the northern seas, we saw plates less than a third of an inch thick resist a pressure of 16 atmospheres. Now, the glass that I use is not less than 30 times thicker. Granted, but after all, in order to see, the light must exceed the darkness. And in the midst of the darkness and the water, how can you see? Behind the steersman's cage is placed a powerful electric reflector, the rays from which light up the sea for half a mile in front. (laughs) Bravo. Bravo, Captain. Now I can account for this phosphorescence in the supposed narwhal that puzzled us so. I now ask you if the boarding of the Nautilus and of the Scotia that has made such a noise has been the result of a chance encounter. Quite accidental, sir. I was sailing only one fathom below the surface of the water when the shock came. It had no bad result. None, sir, but now about your encounter with the Abraham Lincoln— Professor, I am sorry for one of the best vessels in the American Navy, but they attacked me, and I was bound to defend myself. I contented myself, however, with putting the frigate out of combat. She will not have any difficulty in getting repaired at the next port. Ah, Commander, your Nautilus is certainly a marvelous boat. Yes, Professor and I love it as if it were part of myself. If danger threatens one of your vessels on the ocean, the first impression is the feeling of an abyss above and below. On the Nautilus, men's hearts never fail them. No defects to be afraid of, for the double shell is as firm as iron. No rigging to attend to, no sails for the wind to carry away. No boilers to burst, no fire to fear, for the vessel is made of iron, not of wood. No coal to run short, for electricity is the only mechanical agent. No collision to fear, for it alone swims in deep water. No tempest to brave, for when it dives below the water, it reaches absolute tranquility There, sir, that is the perfection of vessels, and if it is true that the engineer has more confidence in the vessel than the builder, and the builder than the captain himself, you understand the trust I repose in my Nautilus, for I am at once captain, builder, and engineer. But how could you construct this wonderful Nautilus in secret? Each separate portion, Monsieur Aronnax, was brought from different parts of the globe. The keel was forged at Cresot. the shaft of the screw at Penn & Company's London, the iron plates of the hull at Laird's of Liverpool, the screw itself at Scots, at Glasgow. The reservoirs were made by Kale and company at Paris. The engine by Krupp in Prussia. It's beak in Motala's workshop in Sweden. It's mathematical instruments by Hart Brothers of New York, etc. And each of these people had my orders under different names. These parts had to be put together and arranged. Professor, I had set up my workshops upon a desert island in the ocean. There, my workmen, that is to say the brave men that I instructed and educated, and myself have put together our Nautilus. Then, when the work was finished, fire destroyed all trace of our proceedings on the island, that I could have jumped over it if I had liked. Then the cost of this vessel is great. Monsieur Aranax, an iron vessel costs 145 pounds per ton. Now the Nautilus weighed 1,500. It came therefore to 67,500 pounds and 80,000 pounds more for fitting it up, and about two hundred thousand pounds with the works of art and the collections it contains. One last question, Captain Nemo. Ask it, Professor. You are rich. Immensely rich, sir, and I could, without missing it, pay the national debt of France I stared at the singular person who spoke thus. Was he playing upon my credulity? The future would decide that. Chapter 13 The Black River. The portion of the terrestrial globe which is covered by water is estimated at upwards of eighty millions of acres. This fluid mass comprises two billions, two hundred and fifty millions of cubic miles, forming a spherical body of a diameter of sixty leagues, the weight of which would be three quintillions of tons. To comprehend the meaning of these figures, it is necessary to observe that a quintillion is to a billion as a billion is to unity. In other words, there are as many billions in a quintillion as there are units in a billion. This mass of fluid is equal to about the quantity of water which would be discharged by all the rivers of the earth in 40,000 years. During the geological epochs, the ingenious period succeeded to the aqueous The oceans originally prevailed everywhere. Then, by degrees, in the Silurian period, the tops of the mountains began to appear. The islands emerged, then disappeared in partial deluges, reappeared, became settled, formed continents, till at length the earth became geographically arranged as we see in the present day. The solid had rested from the liquid 37,657 square miles equal to 12,960,000,000 of acres. The shape of continents allows us to divide the waters into five great portions. The Arctic or frozen ocean, the Antarctic Or frozen ocean, the Indian, the Atlantic, and the Pacific Oceans. The Pacific Ocean extends from north to south between the two polar circles, and from east to west between Asia and America, over an extent of 145 degrees of longitude. It is the quietest of seas. Its currents are broad and slow, It has medium tides and abundant rain. Such was the ocean that my fate destined me first to travel over under these strange conditions. Sir, said Captain Nemo, we will, if you please, take our bearings and fix the starting point of this voyage. It is a quarter to twelve. I will go up again to the surface. The captain pressed an electric clock three times. The pumps began to drive the water from the tanks. The needle of the manometer marked by a different pressure the ascent of the nautilus. Then it stopped. We have arrived, said the captain. I went to the central staircase which opened onto the platform, clambered up the iron steps, and found myself on the upper part of the Nautilus. The platform was only three feet out of water. The front and back of the Nautilus was of that spindle shape which caused it justly to be compared to a cigar. I noticed that its iron plates, slightly overlaying each other, resembled the shell which clothes the body of our large terrestrial reptiles. It explained to me how natural it was, in spite of all glasses, that this boat should have been taken for a marine animal. Toward the middle platform, the long boat, half buried in the hull of the vessel, formed a slight excrescence. Fore and aft rose two cages of medium height with inclined sides and partly closed by thick lenticular glasses, one destined for the steersman who directed the Nautilus, the other containing a brilliant lantern to give light on the road. The sea was beautiful, the sky pure. Scarcely could the long vehicle feel the broad undulations of the ocean. A light breeze from the east rippled the surface of the waters. The horizon, free from fog, made observation easy. Nothing was in sight, not a quicksand, not an island, a vast desert. Captain Nemo, by the help of his sextant, took the altitude of the sun, which ought also to give the latitude. He waited for some moments till its disk touched the horizon. Whilst taking observations, not a muscle moved, The instrument could not have been more motionless in a hand of marble. Twelve o'clock, sir, said he, when you like. I cast a last look upon the sea, slightly yellowed by the Japanese coast, and descended to the salon. And now, sir, I leave you to your studies, added the captain. Our course is east-northeast. Our depth is twenty-six fathoms. Here are maps on a large scale by which you may follow it. The salon is at your disposal, and with your permission, I will retire." Captain Nemo bowed, and I remained alone, lost in thought, all bearing on the commander of the Nautilus. For a whole hour was I deep in these reflections, seeking to pierce this mystery so interesting to me. Then my eyes fell upon the vast planisphere spread upon the table, and I placed my finger on the very spot where the given latitude and longitude crossed. The sea has its large rivers like the continents. They are special currents known by their temperature and their color, The most remarkable of these is known by the name of the Gulf Stream. Science has decided on the globe the direction of five principal currents, one in the North Atlantic, a second in the South, a third in the North Pacific, a fourth in the South, and a fifth in the Southern Indian Ocean. It is even probable that a sixth current existed at one time or another in the Northern Indian Ocean, when the Caspian and Aral Seas formed but one vast sheet of water. At this point indicated on the planisphere, one of these currents was rolling. The Kuroskivo of the Japanese, the Black River which, leaving the Gulf of Bengal, where it was warmed by the perpendicular rays of a tropical sun, crosses the Straits of Malacca along the coast of Asia, turns into the North Pacific to the Aleutian Islands, carrying with it trunks of camphor trees and other indigenous productions, and edging the waves of the ocean with the pure indigo of its warm water. It was this current that the Nautilus was to follow. I followed it with my eye, saw it lose itself in the vastness of the Pacific, and felt myself drawn with it when Ned Land and Kansai appeared at the door of the salon. My two brave companions remained petrified at the sight of the wonders spread before them. Where are we? Where are we? exclaimed the Canadian, in the museum at Quebec. My friends, I answered, making a sign for them to enter. You are not in Canada, but on board the Nautilus, fifty yards below the level of the sea. But Messier Aranax, said Ned Land, can you tell me how many men there are on board? Ten? Twenty? Fifty? A hundred? I cannot answer you, Mr. Land. It is better to abandon for a time all idea of seizing the Nautilus or escaping from it. This ship is a masterpiece of modern industry, and I should be sorry not to have seen it. Many people would accept the situation forced upon us, if only to move amongst such wonders. So be quiet, and let us try and see what passes around us. See, exclaimed the harpooner, but we can see nothing in this iron prison. We are walking, we are sailing, blindly. Ned Land had scarcely pronounced these words when all was suddenly darkness. The luminous ceiling was gone, and so rapidly that my eyes received a painful impression. We remained mute, not stirring, and not knowing what surprise awaited us, whether agreeable or disagreeable. A sliding noise was heard. One would have said that panels were working at the sides of the Nautilus. It is the end of the end, said Nutland. Suddenly light broke at each side of the salon through two oblong openings. The liquid mass appeared vividly lit up by the electric gleam. Two crystal plates separated us from the sea. At first I trembled at the thought That this frail partition might break but strong bands of copper bound them giving an almost infinite power of resistance the sea was distinctly visible for a mile all around the Nautilus what a spectacle what pen can describe it who could paint the effects of the light through those transparent sheets of water and the softness of the successive gradations from the lower to the superior strata of the ocean. We know the transparency of the sea and that its clearness is far beyond that of rock water. The mineral and organic substances which it holds in suspension heightens its transparency. In certain parts of the ocean, at the Antilles, under 75 fathoms of water can be seen with surprising clearness of a bed of sand. The penetrating power of the solar rays does not seem to cease for a depth of 150 fathoms. But in this middle fluid traveled over by the Nautilus, the electric brightness was produced even in the bosom of the waves. It was no longer luminous water, but liquid light. On each side, a window opened into this unexplored abyss. The obscurity of the salon showed to advantage the brightness outside, and we looked out as if this pure crystal had been the glass of an immense aquarium. You wished to see, friend, Ned? Well, you see now. Curious, curious, muttered the Canadian, who, forgetting his ill-temper, seemed to submit to some irresistible attraction. And one would come further than this to admire such a sight. Huh, thought I to myself. I understand the life of this man. He has made a world apart for himself, in which he treasures all his greatest wonders. For two whole hours, an aquatic army escorted the Nautilus. During their games, their bounds, while rivaling each other in beauty, brightness, and velocity, I distinguished the green labor, the banded mullet, marked by a double line of black, The round-tailed goby of a white color with violet spots on the back, the Japanese scrumbus, a beautiful mackerel of those seas with a blue body and silvery head, some banded spares with variegated fins of blue and yellow, the woodcocks of the sea some specimens of which attain a yard in length, Japanese salamanders, spider lampreys, serpents six feet long, with eyes small and lively, and a huge mouth bristling with teeth, with many other species. Our imagination was kept at its height.